Hello, welcome to You Don't Know Mojack. My name is Ryan. My name is Brent. In this episode, we're discussing SST 196, the Paul Rossler Abominable album. We've had Paul on before on a number of releases, but this is his first solo album. So very cool. We're back from a break yet again. I don't feel any rested. Uh, I got nothing done, but I am stoked to continue the SST story. We've got a wild one today with Paul's record. And uh, we also have a special guest, Brent. Yeah, Kenny Lyons on the show. Yeah, that's like it's a very cool interview, I will say. Brent usually tries to sneak in a Guns N' Roses or a Hanoi Rocks reference in his interviews, but he, if you can believe it, he got in a Jan Arden <laughs> reference in this one. So well done, Brent. Well done. Oh, don't worry. There's a Hanoi Rocks reference coming later in the show. Excellent. Uh, <laughs> it wouldn't be 2022 without one. Now this, speaking of 2022, this is our first episode back. So for our spiels, if I'm not mistaken, it's top tens of 2021. So I have two predictions for this year's top tens, okay? Okay. Ready? Yeah. So unlike in years past, I am predicting no overlap. Oh, there'll be overlap. You think so? I already know which one for sure. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, here's my other prediction. I predict that Brant is going to say at least three times when I'm going through my top tens, I knew you were going to say that one. (laughs) Could happen. (laughs) At least three times. Well, Uh, mine's pretty predictable too, man. Yeah, maybe, maybe. There's a, you always have some out of left field that, that I'm just like, what is that? And you're like, oh, it's just, you know, this new Norwegian prog rock album. Oh, there's definitely some stuff in here for you, man. Get your, get your pen out. I've got my cockatoo quill out. So top tens first. And then we'll talk about honorable mentions. And then next week's episode, we're going to do the 2021 SST roundup. That's right. There are, you know, some SST related bands and artists definitely in my honorable mentions, but we're not going to talk about them this week. We're going to talk about all of that next week. Yeah. Next week is the SST 2021 roundup focus. This is top tens, non-SST honorable mentions. Do I have that right? You have that right. And Ryan, this is our fifth top 10 episode. Cool. Um, Okay. So who's going first? Me? You go first. All right. Numero 10. Yep. Okay. The band is TV Priest. (laughs) Yep. It's good. Yeah. The record is Uppers, out on Sub Pop, post-punk from London. If you need a modern dancier the fall record this is for you and uh, i loved it these are guys basically from that band torches um but this tv priest record is is killer i i listen to it all the time i don't really like dance music but this has got a dancey vibe and uh, i loved it yep pretty sure that's in my honorable mentions uh number 10 for me ryan greg stackhouse prevost Songs for These Times with Alex Patrick. Greg was vocalist and one of the primary songwriters, along with Andy Babiak, in The Chesterfield Kings. Ah. This is his third solo album. All three are on Mean Disposition Records out of Barcelona. His first two were, were like full band affairs. This one is subtitled, subtitled Folk Songs, Ballads, Blues, and a Spiritual. 
and kind of deepens his musical association with like Beggar's Banquet era stones. If you're like me and your favorite Chesterfield Kings material is the Stones worshiping era, you'll love this. Super stripped down, live in the studio vibe, uh, about 50-50 covers to originals. Cool. Yeah, I'm not surprised to see that one on your list. Uh, my next one, number nine, is a recommend from you, Brent. The Boot Heels record. That's Ken De La Cruz who yeah. requested that one. Yeah. It, it's De- awesome. It's awesome, man. Boy, oh boy, did I listen to this a ton as soon as you uh, told me about it. Of course, you know, Jacob Dylan. Uh, this is his band with a, a bunch of dudes from 88, the original demos out on Omnivore. It's demos. It's perfect. It's like these guys went to the replacement soul asylum clash school and they strapped on two tellies and just went nuts. And I love it. Yeah. I knew you would as soon as I heard it. Oh, it's so good. I'm glad you picked that up. Okay. Number nine for me, Amel and the sniffers comfort to me on rough trade. This Aussie band has been getting a lot of attention lately. Yeah. It's warranted. Uh, this is their second, and to be honest, I kind of wrote them off uh, as I didn't really love their debut. This one is just head and shoulders above their debut in playing, songwriting, uh, lyrically. It's a lockdown album. They spent lockdown, a long one, because they're Australian, mm-hmm. uh, in like a band house together, and the results speak for themselves. This is as good as it gets for modern punk rock. Vocalist Amy Taylor is just a total force. Uh, at times, you know, they maybe remind me of Cosmic Psychos a bit. Maybe it's just because they're Australian, who also have a new album this year, Mountain of Piss, which is a total return to form. So, yeah, if you haven't heard that, Ryan, check it out. It's yeah, good. Yeah, I, uh, I watched live at KEXP, Amel and the Sniffers, yeah. and uh, it was great. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, you're right to reference cosmic psychos and australia bands they always just have like an unimpeachable rhythm section as does amel and the sniffers i just love the groove yep number eight for me the descendants ninth and walnut now i i kind of feel like people forgot about this record and uh, i will admit it's a bit frustrating for me because i don't know where to file it in my descendants shelf like where does it go chronologically but it's frank and tony And I just loved the old Descendants mixed with modern Descendants sound. And it's just packed with tons and tons of great songs. Um, It's a number eight for easily number eight for me. I loved it. Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. Okay. Number eight for me, Ryan, it's the Naked Raygun over the Overlords. Oh yeah. That's good. eh? So good. Chicago punk rock legends with one hell of a recorded legacy uh, to live up to. And they pulled it off for me. After teasing new material for years, they finally delivered. It's chock full of anthems. Jeff can still belt it out, you know, unlike anyone else. Uh, When a much-loved band releases a new album after 30 years, it can go either way. This one has moments that, you know, that'll make the hair stand up on the back of your neck. And Jeff... I mean, his output has been really consistent, even with that band in between The Bomb. Love The Bomb. Yep. Uh, but I agree, man. Wow, what a great record. Not in my top 10, though. Hmm. Maybe you just didn't sit with it long enough. I sat with it a great deal once I got it. Yeah. I mean, I there was just so much good stuff this year, it's you know? And, and I got it, like, you know, four weeks ago or whatever. Right. All right, for me, 
Another record that I think people forgot about, and another SST alum, Dinosaur Jr., Sweep It Into Space. Any Dino album is going to be in my top 10, pretty much. Um, I just love it. It's, I mean, there were a few comments out there that kind of sounded like uh, the Dinosaur Jr., you know, why aren't they mixing it up, you know? But I mean, like, they wrote the book on this sound, and it's an amazing record. The Lou Barlow tracks are awesome as yeah. well. Yeah. Love this record. I, I'm surprised it's not higher on your list, to be honest with you. I've got some really good ones that yeah. are coming. I just know they're one of your favorite bands, so. Yeah, yeah. Okay, number seven for me. I teased it a few weeks ago, Ryan. It's Carcass, Torn Arteries <laughs> on Nuclear Blast. <laughs> This one made like number one on, you know, a lot of the metal lists. Yeah. Um, uh, with good reason. It's been a long wait since their 2013 comeback album, Surgical Steel. Totally worth it. Jeff Walker's vocals, uh, his phrasing and lyrics are still the gold standard for like death metal. And Bill Steer might just be the most prolific riff writer since Tony Iommi. Uh, the production Whoa. is perfect. Also, a lot of, you know, a lot of modern metal albums just suffer from overproduction. Uh, and in my opinion, like shitty pro tool drums that are mixed way too high. This doesn't bonus points for song title of the year, Eleanor rigor mortis. Ooh, I like that name. (laughs) (laughs) It's cool. Uh, Crazy Ryan. Some of my all time favorite bands release new albums this year. So, uh, after this one, probably not any surprises for you or our loyal listeners. Okay. No way. Yep. Like, uh, didn't suffer from overproduction like that new Exodus record or whatever? Yeah. That one was overproduced for you, I hear. Way too overproduced. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Number six, SNFU, A Blessing and With It A Curse. Technically an EP, and it's from the In The Meantime and In Between Time sessions, but man, I, I played this one to death. It is five awesome tracks um i got i got the vinyl version and it's the same tracks on both sides it's just awesome you flip it over flip it over you might want to start from the beginning of the same side nope flip it over and man oh man i just love these tracks they you said it when you heard it these are not barrel scrapings no these are you know classic amazing snfu chai's vocals and lyrics are killer great snfu release this is not a criticism so far of your top 10, Ryan, but I, I just want to note that Boot Heels, Descendants, and SNFU all contain, are all like comprised somewhat of older recordings. Somewhat, yes. But I mean, I'm hearing them for the first time in 2021. Yeah, well, the yes. SNFU and Descendants both have new components to them, right? For sure, yeah. for sure. You know what, though? Like, I almost, I'll mention it in the honorable mentions, but I almost put that uh, Sloan covers record in my top 10, too. Like, I was this close to putting it in my top 10. I love it so much. Yeah. But that's all, that's like a re release from 2012. Okay. Number six for me, Ryan, is the new Manic Street Preachers Ultra Vivid Lament. Uh, I just love this band and cannot understand why they're not huge in North America. No band on the planet writes anthems as well as the Manics. If you remember, Ryan, their previous album, Resistance is Futile, was my number one pick in 2018. This one didn't quite grab me quite like that one. Uh, I listened to that one virtually every day for months. This album is still phenomenal. The lead track, Still Snowing in Sapporo, is song of the year, no question about it. 
make sure to get the deluxe edition so you can get all the demo versions of the entire album and Mark Lanigan guests on a track. Ah, it's on the tree. Nice yeah. one. Yep. So I was, so far I'm wrong. You haven't said, you know, I predicted that would be on your list three times yet. You have been critical though of my selections because, you know, maybe strictly speaking, they're not all 2021. So true to form, Brent. Nice one. Uh, I don't think you can say the same though for this one. My number five, Tomahawk, Tonic Immobility. It's just an amazing Tomahawk record. I listened to it to death. If we're not going to have a new Faith No More or Jesus Lizard record, uh, you might as well get some Tomahawk. This is Tomahawk with Trevor Dunn on bass too, which is, uh, it actually does give a bit of a different vibe to it from the Kevin Rudimanis albums. Uh, but I just loved it. I loved it. And I said this, uh, a few weeks back, Mike Patton is one of the best vocalists of all time done. Yeah. I knew that one would be on there for sure. It is awesome. Uh, number five for me, the Bevis Frond, Little Eden on fire records. Another throwback to my 2018 list, Ryan, uh, the, the album, were Your Friends Man made my top 10 that year. This one's higher up on the list, and it's a better record. Of course, like all of the Frond albums, it's a double. It's a real marathon, one and a half hours of classic Frond. Uh, Nick Solomon is the Bevis Frond. Uh, he started the band as a four-track bedroom project, and although he's had a rhythm section for years now, this one is back to basics, with him playing everything, including the drums, except for on one track. Uh, it's got the nice mix of modern Frond albums, uh, like with downbeat folk rock, to extended psych jams, uh, with the most blistering fret melting this side of Jay Mascus. All 20 tracks on here are just fantastic. Wow. I haven't heard that one. Hour and a half, eh? Yep. Nice. All right. Number four, The Raining Sound. Yeah. A little more time with The Raining Sound on Merge Records. Love Greg Cartwright. This is back uh, with the previous version of The Raining Sound. It is a great, I, I don't know if you're okay with this term, Brent, rock and soul, but uh, it's awesome. Love it. Yeah, it's awesome. Rock and soul I can handle. It's punk and roll that I just refuse. Ah, okay, punk and roll. Yeah. Thumbs down. Rock and soul, thumbs up. Yeah. Number four for me, Ryan, The Professionals, Snafu. Oh, no way. On their own JTP Records, their 2017 comeback album, what in the World was my number two pick that year, 2017. Since then, they've released three great EPs and a fantastic live album. This one isn't quite as great as What in the World, but it's still a stunningly good album. This is the band Paul Cook and Steve Jones formed after the Pistols, and these albums are as good, if not better, than the stuff they released in their first incarnation. Paul's now the only original member after original bassist Paul Myers had to step down for health reasons, mm. uh, I believe like last year. Uh, like the last one, Tom Spencer does an amazing job filling in for Steve Jones on guitar and vocals. Like the previous album, there's some guest guitarists like Billy Duffy from The Cult, uh, Phil Collin from Girl, uh, and some other band. All killer, no filler rock and roll. Isn't Phil Collin in Def Leppard? Do I have that right? I don't know, is he? <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> no, he's from the band Girl. Oh, okay. I only listened to the first three Def Leppard records. The rest <laughs> suck. Uh, okay. Number three for me. Finally, finally, it came out. The new Kowloon Walled City. Uh, Piecework is the album on Neurot Recordings. Uh, 
these Oakland guys um, know how to play it slow and low and heavy and really, really interesting. Great uh, guitar work, really unique. The rhythm section is killer. This is one of the last bands I saw before the pandemic and over and over and over when I'm just pining for live music. I think about being in that really tiny room with, you know, a hundred other people and just losing it to Kowloon Wall City and this record rules. Yeah, I saw they have a new one out, haven't heard it, so now I'll have to check it out. Oh yeah. Number three for me, Ryan, Dinosaur Jr. Sweep It Into Space. Oh, no way. I hate it when reviewers constantly reference older records, like as a comparison, but I'm going to do it here. For me, Dinosaur Jr.'s uh, like second comeback album, 2009's Farm, is probably their best overall record. And I'm including, you know, the SST era in that as well. Wow. So, but this one might be better. Every single song on here is a future classic. The riffs, the hooks... Lou's two songs might be two of the best songs he's ever written. Right? Yeah. This album is just front to back phenomenal. Do you love that Met the Stones song? Oh, yeah. It it sounds like Rat. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that's not why I like it. All right, all right. Maybe you like Rat. Maybe I don't. Um, Okay, number two, Quicksand, Distant Populations, out on Epitaph. This record is amazing, start to finish. Walter and crew write some great music, and they they just have mastered the squealing drop D sound and uh, the groovy tunes. This, this record was on almost everyone's top 10 list that I follow, and uh, for good reason. Squealing sounds like pinched harmonics, you mean? <laughs> no. Like I'm talking where Walter does it like it does like the D like boom. Like that kind of back and forth. He mastered that. Okay. It's awesome. Yeah. Uh number two for me, Ryan, won't be any surprise to you. It's the new Pat Todd and the Rank Outsiders. There's... Oh yeah, how is that? I didn't check it out. Good, hey? Oh yeah, man. Everything he does is good. It's called There's Pretty Things in Palookaville. Like the last few, it's on German label Hound God. Right. Pat's sixth album since breaking up the Lazy Cowgirls. I've said it before, he's incapable of writing a bad song. His last album, Pass Came a Colin, made my list in 2019, Mm -hmm. as do all of his albums. These are just great, straight-up, no-for-reals rock and roll songs with amazing lyrics, vocals, hooks galore. Nobody can write a song quite like Pat. And I've yet to find an artist whose music moves me quite the same way as his does. So I don't, I'm not a huge fan of comparing against past albums either, I suppose. But I mean, if this is his sixth one, I think, I think I stayed with him for the first four. And I don't think I've checked out the last two. Like, where would you put this one? It's obviously good coming in at number two in your top 10. But where would you put it in the, in the six post Cowgirls records? I think they're all pretty equal, man. Wow. I I mean, I liked the first one a lot because I was just so happy that he was making new music. Yeah. That it just really resonated with me. But they're all good, man. And is this with the rank outsiders too? Yeah. 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 Okay. Got it. I got to check it out. All right, man. Number one, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of criticism from Brant on this one, but it is the replacements. Sorry, Ma, box set. Never have I anticipated a box set as much as this. This was my this was my gateway drug 
to the maths. I remember listening to this tape in my buddy's car in high school and to get dozens and dozens more tracks that have the same sound and feel and to show the evolution of the band to when they recorded this record. I just can't get enough of it. I've listened to it so many times since I got it and I'll, I'll never stop. It is number one, hands down, even though not any of it was actually recorded in 2021. Well, as soon as I, as soon as you put the boot heels in your top 10, I knew that was okay. We're doing, <laughs> if that's what we're doing, replacements is going to be number one for sure. The I mean, floodgates, the to floodgates be fair, to be fair, when I texted you that I had gotten my copy, you re- you, you called it the greatest box set of all time. It is. When we were texting, it's really good, man. All three of the replacement box sets are, you know, like any, any artist or label that's creating a box set should have a look at those. Like I still haven't even gotten through the liner notes. It's like its own book. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's a great, great compliment to all the replacements books that have come out over the last four or five years and the box sets. But the Sorry Ma box set is my number one and the best box set of all time. Endless, endless listens. It never disappoints. And every single wrong note is the perfect note on that record. Yeah, no, it's really good. Okay, here's my number one, Ryan. Again, this will really not come as a surprise to you. It's the new Iron Maiden album, Senjutsu. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of the long-awaited follow-up to their fantastic Book of Souls album from 2015. This would have, that's the longest they've gone in their entire career without releasing an album, if you can believe it. Yeah. Definitely delayed due to the pandemic. Here's the thing that I respect the most about this band. They're 17 albums deep and they just keep going from strength to strength. They could very easily just rest on their laurels and tour the hits, but they refuse to do anything short of being the most relevant and consistent metal band on the planet and probably in history. Like I said, the six year gap between albums is the longest in their history, but surprisingly, this is only their second studio double album. It clocks in at 1 hour 20 minutes and not a single second is wasted. As usual, they're not scared to take risks with their sound. Uh, the opening title track you know, is a slower, moody track where Nico McBrain barely leaves the toms. Uh, the single, Writing on the Wall, took many people by surprise. Most hardcore fans love a good epic, especially when they're penned solely by Steve Harris. And this album has four of them, three of which are over 10 minutes long. I sure hope I get to see them play this one live. I'd love it if they do like they've did with previous albums and play this back front to back. Mm. It's just, I couldn't get enough of it. I listen to it nonstop. And is it a, it's a double, hey? Like four sides on vinyl? Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, That's great. I'm not surprised to hear that, but I I read a lot of reviews on it that spoke very highly of it for sure. No, it's awesome. All right, Ryan, hit me with some honorable mentions, will you? 2021 honorable mentions. Okay, so before I go, I got to get some rules right here. So reissues? No, not now. I got re- right? I've got reissues in mine. In yours? Is mm-hmm. it a separate list? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'll do the reissues last. What about box sets? Well, you already did the reissues in your top 10, but... <laughs> All right, I'm not asking for... See, I'm trying to ask the rules so I don't get ridiculed, but it doesn't matter. Here we go. Uh, in somewhat of a alphabetical order, but I don't think so. 
Um, most of these, I think I mentioned throughout the year, but there's a fair amount that I have not. Um, Another Heaven put out a great record. Three, The Sorrowful Cries of Birds with Singed Feathers. This is Sludge Gaze from Minneapolis, self-released. It's great. Distorted Pony, live in Hamburg on Improved Sequence. Eleventh Dream Day, Since Grazed on Comedy Minus One. This made a lot of top ten lists. Not Corporate Rock, Fiddlehead. Between the Richness on Run for Cover Records. I can't stop listening to this record. It's great. Um, Fontaine's DC, they put out their Live at Kilmainham Jail record, which is really cool. Great follow-up to last year's record. The Gary from Austin, Texas put out their record Fallow. Noisy Post-Punk on Act Your Age Records. Human Impact. Another Ipecac band put out their EP-01. They collected all of their digital EPs onto uh, a release. That's a great uh, follow-up to their self-titled debut. Uh, From Chicago, the band Luggage, the record Happiness, out on Husky Pants Records. Minimalist noise, but uh, I I really dug this one. Another one with uh, Mike Patton on it, the Mr. Bungle. The Night They Came Home, double LP on Ipecac. That's a great one. Uh, Nata Surf put out a 12-inch that uh, I dug after their full length the prior year, Cycle Through. Nonagon, They Birds on Controlled Burn Records. That was a great one. Part Chimp, Drool on Learning Curve Records for some great modern noise rock. Here's another one of Brant's favorites. Pile put out two records. Uh, The first one, Songs Known Together, Alone on Exploding in Sound Records. And then the second... In the Corners of a Sphere-Filled Room. Uh, The Scientists, another Aussie band, uh, Brent. Negativity, out on In the Red. That was a great record. Uh, Another one that you mentioned uh, uh, after I recommended it, Trigger Cut, Rogo. That made a few uh, top tens last year for sure. Noise Rock from Germany. Uh, This is a band you turned me on to, Brent. Zombie with an I. The Liquid Crystal EP on Relapse. I enjoyed that one. The live obits record on Outer Battery, Die at the Zoo, always love some obits. The new Cherubs EP, Slow Blow for Friends and Sexy on Relapse, that's a great record. Uh, Dale from the Melvins put out the Rat-a-tat-tat record on Joyful Noise. There was a live Dead LP called Up Yours, another Aussie band. An old Amrep band, Love 666, put out their Armed Resistance record on improved sequence pincus's band daddy longhead twinkle that's a great record mm-hmm. you know that's a great one to go back to for sure i recommend from you that i got into late in the year brent wirelines harvest versus yep. really dig that record orphan goggles perfect specimen self-released cd great record um specimen box larry boothroyd's project on valley king records those two lps with uh 60 second snippets all woven together very cool the melvins uh working with god on ipecac the live streams triple lp on Amprep. the five-legged dog four lp on ipecac uh you mentioned naked ray gun that was on my honorable mentions mets live at the opera house was a good one uh the, the only band i saw live in 2021 mets yep gosh not enough live music southern culture on the skids at home with the scots that was a good one 
Uh, the Helmet Live and Rare record. Man, if you want some classic Helmet live and just crushing it, get that record. Sonny Vincent, Snake Pit Therapy. Great Sonny record. Great. Always dig any new War on Drugs. Their I Don't Live Here Anymore record. Got lots of rotation at home. Uh, the New Failure, Wild Type Droid. That's a killer record, as always. Engine Kid put out their Special Olympics EP on Southern Lord. And then uh, let me hit you with some reissues and box sets. Cool? Yeah. Okay. The Gun Club, Fire of Love in Miami, double LP reissues. Killer. Killer, killer oh, yeah. records. Big time. Slift, the uh, the psych rock from France, finally got their Space is the Key and La Planète and Explorer double LP out. Finally, Call of the Void records reissued the Amazing Tales of Terror record. We got the 30th anniversary of Mudhoney, Every Good Boy Deserves Fudge. And some CanCon, Brant. We got the Color Me Psycho, Kiss Me Then reissue on the revived Lance Rock Records. We got uh, Forbidden Dimension, Mars is Heaven on Wasted Wax Records, as well as the Shivs and Shrouds and Our Martian Heritage cassette. Love Me Some Color Me Psycho and Forbidden Dimension. Sloan had two releases that I dug. The B-Sides Win, Volume 2. This is, covers the years 98 to 2001. And then there, this one's an original. First time out on physical. This is their like old-school hardcore punk comp. Yep. Uh, it's it's awesome. They do, you know, Seven Seconds, Black Flag, Descendants, Bad Religion, um, Grey Matter. Great covers on that. Uh, the Unsane Improved Munitions demo came out. Awesome. The Tribute to Repo Man was re-released finally on vinyl. Also re-released was the Hum Downward is Heavenward on double LP remastered, vinyl only. Sounds amazing. And uh, let me wrap up my honorable mentions with some box sets that I dug, Brant. Uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Deja Vu 50th anniversary box. It's killer start to finish. Uh, the Engine Kid. Everything Left Inside, box set on Southern Lord. Love that one. Gang of Four, 77 to 81, box set on Matador. The Wire, PF456, double 10-inch and 7-inch box set. What a silly package, but it was great to get those in that. It was beautiful Wire box set package, as usual. The George Duke, The Era Will Prevail, 7LP box set. If you want some serious Zappa jazz fusion from the 70s, man, I dug that box set. And then, of course, Zappa's own 200 Motels 6 CD box set, as well as the 88 box set. All right. Good list, man. Do you have any honorable mentions, or did I I cover them all? You covered some of them, but I'm (laughs) I'm not skipping any of mine that you already talked about. Okay, good. But yeah, my pen was just smoking there, man. Sweet. Yep. Okay, you better get your pen out because there's some recommends for you here. Do it. All right, here's my honorable mentions. Tomahawk, Tonic Immobility. Eight years since their last, quite possibly, this is their best. Mm. Nobody can riff quite like Dwayne Dennison. This probably should have been in my top 10, but maybe since it came out so early in the year, it kind of fell off my radar a bit, maybe. Yeah, I think that happened to a lot of stuff in 2021 yeah here's one for you ryan if you don't know this record finnish noise rock band throat has a totally killer new record called smile less on svart records i listened to that one a ton 
dark, heavy noise rock with a cool post-punk feel, you'll love it, Ryan. Yeah, I think I checked them out, but it didn't sink in. I'll check it out again. Here's another one for you. Kansas City band Bummer. Their album Dead oh, Horse yeah. on Thrill Jockey. Yeah, yeah. Riftastic noise rock with some Melvins thrown into the mix. Super nihilistic, nice and heavy. Danish punk band Ice Age released their fifth and possibly best album, Seek Shelter, on Mexican Summer this year. Interesting album for them, a bit of a departure. It still has that dark post-punk feel of their previous records, but it also has almost a like a glammy Britpop vibe to it. Super catchy, definitely check that out. Uh, in 2018, Ryan, I put the Idols album Joy is an Act of Resistance in my top 10, and yep. their newest one, Crawler, on the Partisan label, could have easily also been in my top 10 this year. Just bitchin' songs, and although the band is known for kind of getting, getting annoyed when they get called a, a punk band or described as post-punk, I don't know how, how else to describe them. Yeah. Jo- Joe Talbert is just one of my favorite vocalists right now. Great songs, good record. Uh, also in 2018, Ryan... Shame Songs of Praise was in my top 10. They followed it up this year with Drunk Tank Pink on Dead Oceans. It came out way back in January, so maybe again, I just listened to it too much earlier in the year. Just more unbelievably good British punk anthems. Slaughterhouse Fun Factory on Recess Records slash Water Under the Bridge. South Bay uh, of LA band, almost an old school, like a death rock Thing going they do it really well really cool gothy feel some songs almost sound like beneath the shadows era tsol or something like that it's good uh, columbus ohio band sextide has a new album called ohio on feeding tube records just totally on fire stooges influence rock complete with ryan mccauley kind of playing the the role of steve mckay and just scronking on the sax that's really good Dry Cleaning, New Long Leg on 4AD, their debut, kind of like Magazine, Joy Division, Pill, etc. Vocalist Florence Shaw like almost speaks the vocals in the same way Kim Gordon does at times. That's mm. really good. Uh, this band, Miniskirt, an Australian band, has a split with another Aussie band called Coffin, and Coffin is spelled C, like C dot O dot F, etc., Two totally shit-hot Aussie bands. Miniskirt are more of a post-punk band. Uh, They had a Deadly album from last year called Casino. Coffin are just one of these classic balls-out Australian punk bands. That's really good. Another Australian band I know I've talked about before, uh, also from Sydney, uh, probably could have been in my top 10, but it came out in November, uh, so maybe just didn't get enough time with it. The band's called Low Life. Uh, and by their own admission, it's not quite as immediate as their debut, Dogging. Uh, they refer to it as a grower, and it really is. Uh, I think it's their best, probably. It's called From Squats to Lots, The Agony and Ecstasy of Low Life. It's g- kind of gothy, shoegazy, super deep lyrically, dirgy post-punk. It's on Goner. Check it out, Ryan. It totally mm-hmm. rules. Uh, another band I've talked a lot about on the show, the great Norwegian prog band Motorcycle, have another new album. It's called Kingdom of Oblivion on Stickman Records. It's, of course, a double album, and it rules hard. Uh, this band Goat released a comp of unreleased tracks uh, and a few new ones, singles, uh, under the brilliant name Head Soup. Uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> it's nice on their one. yeah it's on their usual label rocket recordings and like all of their stuff it's just brilliant psych rock put through like a world music filter jerry cantrell ryan released his third solo album brighton and it's just chock full of hits great songwriting singing and of course guitar playing allison chain fans will delight to it for sure i didn't even know that that came out does he have uh is puffy on drums on that do you know his drumming i'm not sure to be honest with you Oh, man, because I, I actually really dug the first two way back when they came out. What was it, Boggy Depot, and what was the other one? Uh, oh, gosh, I got to get get some Cantrell going again. Yeah. But, I mean, the, the mic board and drumming for Cantrell was, uh, was very cool anyways. Yeah, you'll like this one. Uh, the Zombie album that you mentioned is great. And like Zombie, John Carpenter lost Themes 3, Alive After Death, his third album of new music with his band, uh, which features his son Cody and his godson Daniel, son of Dave Davies, on guitar. Many of these tracks had already been released as singles, but great to have them in one place, and as always, Sacred Bones just has killer packaging. Uh, a little more time with the raining sound. That awesome. was really good. Yep. Uh, speaking of rootsier stuff, prolific Canadian singer-songwriter Daniel Romano didn't quite release as many albums as last year, uh, which was well into the double digits. Two studio this this year, Cobra Poems and Kissing the Foe, and a second live album called Fully Plugged In. Just fantastic songwriting. He really should be well, more, you know, more well known outside of Canada. London's '60s psych rock influenced UK band Mark and the Clouds followed up their excellent 2017 album Cumulus with Waves. That's really good. Uh, you mentioned Sonny Vincent, mm-hmm. Ryan. He did release a killer new album, Snake Pit Therapy, but the new supergroup he's formed called The Limit was the one that I couldn't get enough of this year. Oh. Uh, it's called Caveman Logic. It's Hugo Conum on guitar, Total Shredder, Joao Pedro Ventura on drums. They're both of Portuguese band Dawn Rider. But then, Ryan, it's got Jimmy Recca, who was in the Stooges, and also Ron Ashton's New Order. He's on bass, Sonny on guitar and vocals, and the lead vocalist is Bobby Liebling of Doom Legends Pentagram. Whoa. It, it's pine, just super primal rock and roll in the MC, NC5 vein, and it just rules. Cool. Uh, one of the bands that had new music coming out in December that I wanted to wait and hear from is New York City band Dr. Boogie. The new one's called Everybody's Ready. Finally, a follow-up to their amazing 2015 debut, Gotta Get Back to New York City. If you're into Thunders and, you know, like the first Faster Pussycat album, then this is tailor-made for you. Straight up Stones Faces vibe. Sammy Yaffa of Hanoi Rock's New York Dolls released his debut solo album, The Innermost Journey to Your Outermost Mind, and it's super eclectic and awesome. I think you would like it, Ryan. Uh, Also of The Dolls and Michael Monroe of Hanoi's solo band, Steve Conte has a new solo album on Little Steven's Wicked Cool label called Bronx Cheer, and it's just more of that swashbuckling rock and roll that I love. Uh, TV Priest Uppers I was going to talk about. Bedford Mass's melodic punk band Wirelines. Mm-hmm. Uh, featuring podcast pal Kevin Grant of Gaskill, The Hidden, and more. Some metal, Ryan, just for you. Memoriam, fourth album in four years from this English death metal band. It's called To the End on Nuclear Blast. Bit of a super group, Frank Healy from Benediction and Bolt Thrower vocalist Carl Willits, who is just on peak form here. Uh, there's a Doomy track on here called Each Step, One Closer to the Grave that is just unreal. 
Uh, Al Jorgensen Ryan has released the best ministry album in years called Moral Hygiene. Super confrontational, just lays into Trump super hard. <laughs> There's lots of pandemic stuff and, you know, like the current state of global affairs. Uh, the best track on here features Biafra on vocals, and apparently there's a new Lard album coming in 2022. Ooh, that'd be cool. Yeah, and another Ministry album is already in the can. Uh, a favorite of mine, former Accept vocalist Udo Dirkschneider, has a new one with his band Udio called Game Over. It's just total Teutonic metal riff fest of the highest order. Accept also have a new one called Too Mean to Die, which is cool. Uh, but for me, it's their weakest since coming back. Uh, but what saves it are the unbelievable vocals of Mark Tornillo. Uh, speaking of German metal bands, Halloween released their 16th studio album. It's a total return to form. Uh, they brought back Kai Hansen on guitar and Michael Kisk on vocals, who is now co-lead vocalist with his longtime replacement, Andy Darris. Uh, if you gave up on Halloween a long time ago, check this out. Self-titled, it rules. Uh, this gothy metal band I'm pretty sure I've mentioned before called Idle Hands have changed their name to Unto Others and released a great new album called Strength. Uh, it's super epic stuff, kind of almost like Killing Joke. Ryan, you might like that. Hmm. Uh, Sweet Oblivion featuring Jeff Tate have released second album, Relentless. Fans of Queensryche will totally love this. It's the best thing he's been involved with since the glory days of Queensryche for sure. Again, if you've given up on Jeff Tate, and who could blame you if you have, give this a listen. Also, his replacement in Queensryche, Todd Latour, has a really heavy debut solo album called Rejoice in the Suffering, clearly influenced by Rob Halford's solo stuff. So if you're into that, uh, which I am, check this out. Uh, speaking of world-class vocalists, one of my favorites, John Bush and his band Armored Saint, uh, have a new live recording um, featuring one of their best albums front to back called Symbol of Salvation Live. Also a front to back live recording that I totally got off on this year was Gore's Scum Dogs XXX Live, which I believe indicates it's 30 years old. Uh, it's of course with Blothar standing in for Odorous. It's great. Uh, Maggot Heart, German gothy metal band who made my top 10 last year, have a new split EP with this DB band Occulta Karate that's super great. Uh, I'm super fussy when it comes to black metal. It has to be just right, especially production-wise. Craven Idol, Forked Tongues is great. Black metal with some thrashy elements. Manchester's Wode has a total classic on their hands with Burn in Many Mirrors uh, on the always reliable 20 Buck Spin label. And then this Denver band called Stormkeep has this kind of fantastic black metal, not unlike Immortal. The album's called Tales of Other Time. There's tracks on here like An Ode to Dragons, The Serpent Stone. Uh, here's a recommend for you, Ryan. Iceburn's new one. Yeah. On Southern Lord. It's got a lot of spins for me this year. Uh, it's two longer, super uh, riffy Melvins-esque tracks. That's really good. Geez, Ryan, I'm just going to name these records. I've talked about them because uh, this is getting a little long. Uh, the, Are we still in metal? No, we're moving off. I was going to go through some jazz stuff. The two uh, two records from Hedvig Malastad this year are really great. Throttle Elevator Music, Final mm. Floor. Do you know them? I don't. Yeah, check them out. It's Kamasi Washington's kind of super group. Their new record's really good. John Zorn released a bunch of records. Some are good. I, I think I've talked about most of those, so I'm going to skip that. Uh, the new Pat Todd single is really good. The new Black Halo single is really good. Uh, Lids 
Have you heard that single on Sub Pop, Ryan? The band is Lids? Yeah. No. Bit of a Canadian supergroup with members of Holy Fuck, Mets, and Constantines. No way. Apparently they they have a full length coming out, so. That I got to check out. Yep. Uh, The new Junkyard single, Lifer, (laughs) is the song. If you don't get off on that song, there's something wrong with you. It's just awesome. Uh, Scott Deluck Drake's and Drake and Jeff Fieldhouse of the band Gorilla Teens have a kill, killer new single. Uh, much like Pat Todd and Junkyard, these get you know, just total rock and roll lifers. Uh, you mentioned the Blixa Sounds reissues of the Gun Club. Those are great. Mm-hmm. The Black Crows Shake Your Money Maker 30th Anniversary is also excellent. So... I didn't check that one out. I saw it though. And I'm, I'm a lifelong Crows fan. Nothing compared to you though. Like, is it like unreleased stuff? Is it demos? What is it? It's, it's just the original album, but then there's a really great, uh, live, oh, okay. live record in Atlanta. And there's some other stuff like, uh, some demos from Mr. Crow's garden. Okay. Yeah. That, and that's, that's the band before. Yeah. The Black Crows, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you mentioned uh, Little Steven a moment ago. I yep. think when you were, you were, had a, like a little tipsy gypsy theme there for a while. Yep. I, re- I read his book over Christmas, by the way, and he talks about, you know, his, his ra- serious radio program and all that kind of stuff. And there's a blurb in there about the Crows. And uh, I remember thinking, oh, I bet your Brant would like to check that out. So I'll keep oh, yeah. that book, keep that book aside for you. For sure, man. Uh, the Black Sabbath, Volume 4, and Technical Ecstasy box sets are both totally crucial. Fastbacks released a great live set from Seattle, 1986, on their 3G's records. Uh, There's footage of the entire show on YouTube also, which is really awesome for Fastbacks fans. Uh, A year after his passing, a bunch of unreleased recordings from Dave Cusworth's first band, The Hawks, uh, got released called Obviously Five Believers, uh, a band which featured original Duran Duran vocalist Stephen Duffy. Uh, the Stones Tattoo You, again, good excuse to revisit the parent album, uh, and has, as has kind of become the Stones' practice lately, the bonus disc of unreleased tracks with recently, you know, beefed up in the studio with, you know, new vocals and some overdubs. Really great stuff. Neil Young, another album I kind of wanted to wait to hear was his new one with Crazy Horse called Barn. Bit of a disappointment, but I'll keep listening. Uh, might be a grower. Way Down in the Rust Bucket from the Tour for Ragged Glory is a total 10 out of 10, though. Came out this year. Uh, I know we discussed this earlier, but Coltrane's A Love Supreme live in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Recorded in 1965, but I think just recently discovered it's brilliant. Yeah. The, the Boot Heels is great. Uh, the Sorry Ma box set uh, is on here. Dylan Springtime in New York, Bootleg Series, Volume 16, 80 to 85. It's the Shot of Love, Infidels, Empire, Burlesque era. All those uh, Bootleg Series releases of his are really good. Uh, it's a great era to revisit too, that one, because not something uh, you know that I go back to. The Zappa 88 Mm-hmm. Last U.S. show, uh, speaking of eras that don't really revisit too often, I sure got off on that. Did you listen to the uh, the Stairway to Heaven? Yeah. <laughs> so good, <laughs> so good. Uh, the Helmet, live and rare, early 90s live recordings. Uh, side one is at CB's, side two in Melbourne. Uh, really reminded me of how 
great helmet was during this era, but also how influential they were and how mm-hmm. you know fresh they sounded at the time. Even though there have been a million imitators since Mean Time came out, this stuff still holds up. Oh, yeah. Uh, Alan Vega's archives are being opened up, and it's looking like In the Red will be releasing much of it. Two great ones uh, this year. Alan Vega After Dark with Ben Vaughn, uh, Barb Dwyer, and Palmyra Delran. Dark blues that's weird and just so cool. And then an insane lost album from the 90s called Mutator. Both just rule super hard. Can't wait to hear more. Uh, there's been a few more cool box sets that I recently picked up, Ryan, but I'm, I'm going to dive into them you know, a bit further in some future sh- spiels, so I'll, I'll save them. Like I said, there's also a bunch of stuff on the tree that's would have been in my honorable mention, so we'll, we'll get to that next week. Yeah. But man, what a great year. And Ryan, we already have like new material announced from the helicopters. Voivod. Like, Super Chunk. Yeah, man. Super Chunk album this year. Yeah. What a time to be alive. Yeah. Hey, nice. <laughs> Good pun. Good Super Chunk pun. <laughs> wow. You're in top form mm-hmm. this year already. Wow. Well, don't slow don't slow down, buddy. Yeah. Man, I don't know. Like I'm so grateful for, you know, just music just gets me through, man. And there's been so much good stuff. Yeah, well, especially the last two years. I don't know what I don't know what I would do without it on the best of days, you know? Yeah. Let's hope there's a few more replacements box sets on the way. Yeah. I'm sure there is, man. I'm sure there is. I mean, they got to do, you know. Stink. Yeah. Although Tommy says there's nothing left. Hmm. But, but we shall see. They said that after the last one. All right, Ryan, we should probably get into this Paul Rossler album. And thanks to everybody for indulging, indulging us there. I hope you find something new to listen to. Yeah, let's do it. History lesson, part one. All right, man. Paul Rossler. Very cool to get into a solo record by Paul. As mentioned, we've had him on the show. He actually was a guest on the Pat Ruthensmere record. SST-154. He's also a member, of course, of DC-3. So we've had Paul on on SST-33, the This is the Dream record, SST-63, the Good Hex, SST-83, You're Only as Blind as Your Mind Can Be, and then SST-156, Vita. And of course, Paul was in a bunch of hugely influential LA bands like Screamers, Twisted Roots, 45 Grave, Nervous Gender, Gaza X, but it's uh, it's a really weird and interesting album to listen to. But when you know Paul's story and these releases that I just mentioned, it's not a surprising re- listen at all. This totally sounds like the type of record that Paul Rossler would make. Not my cup of tea, usually, I would say, but I'll be interested to go through the tracks with you in history lesson number two to see what you think, because there's uh, definitely a couple of things that I thought were really cool. Yeah, I no surprise here. I loved it. Um, so here's some stuff I got from Paul. He sent me a bunch of stuff. Nice. So I asked him a zillion questions, and he patiently answered all of them, which is always appreciated. Paul says, I have always done home recordings, there's actually a number of new ones uh, of old home recordings, Ryan, up on his band camp, but I'll be talking about those next week during our 2021 SST roundup. Ah. Uh, he says, I would weasel four tracks out of anyone. 
I could because I didn't actually own one. One of the genres that I did a lot of was strange little instrumental pieces, just experiments mostly. I don't really do it that much anymore. I'm more of a songwriter now, but at the time I had tons of them, just pieces of music that didn't seem to lend themselves to lyrics and seemed to stand on their own. Some of them were beautiful and orchestral. I played some of that stuff for David Ferguson at CD Presents, and he wanted to release it as a sort of new age album. I worked on that for years. It was called Anemone, but it never came out. CD Presents Ryan released a ton of great stuff, in, mm-hmm. including the self-titled Twisted Roots album uh, Paul made in 86-87 with De- uh, Del Hopkins, Bruce Duff, and Dezo. Uh, if you've never heard that, you should seek it out. Paul goes on, Meanwhile, I had all of these other instrumentals that didn't fit that genre at all. Stuff like Frogskin, Graft, and Son of Mouse Maze. I remember thinking, that's the stuff that's just never going to be released. There's no place for it. Which is exactly what I said when I sent it to Greg Ginn. And he said, let's put it out. I'll I'll always be grateful to Greg for that. Yeah. He says, some of the songs felt finished exactly as they were. They were sort of experimental sketches, and I liked the idea of something so weird and unfinished sounding coming off on a turntable. But at least half of them could be re-recorded with a real band instead of drum machines and fake instruments. So that's what we went into the studio to record. He said, really what I sent Greg included most of this material just in a more primitive form. Uh, here's what he wrote when he put this up on his Bandcamp last year, which it is. If uh, you don't own this, you can check it out on his Bandcamp. He wrote, In 1987, I collected a group of home recordings that I considered least likely to ever be released by any record label anywhere and sent them to Greg Ginn at SST Records. They were weirdo instrumentals that seemed doomed to disappear into the ether, but Greg suggested I take some musicians into third wave studios in Redondo Beach and record an album. I had met Kenny Lyon through Nina Hagen, and he introduced me to drummer Greg Ellis, two of the most stunning musicians I've ever had the pleasure of working with. They suggested we bring in Rob McKenzie to play some additional guitar on a few songs. Two of the songs also had massive contributions from the illustrious Geza X. He says, thanks to Greg Ginn, not just for allowing this album to exist, but also for helping the 80s to be musically bearable. So before we kick it over to Kenny Ryan, I'll just expand a little bit on the musicians so people can get the references while we're talking. Uh, Kenny Lyon uh, is the bass guitar guitarist on this record. Uh, Greg Ellis, whose his name is spelled Greg L.S. on the album, is the drummer and percussionist. Uh, it took a bit of digging, Ryan, but I was uh, pretty thrilled, here's that Hanoi Rocks reference, to find Greg Ellis on the Jerusalem Slim album. If it's the same Greg Ellis, and I think it is because I compared their pictures and it looks like the same guy, Jerusalem Slim was a one-and-done from the early 90s with Sammy Yaffa and Michael Monroe of Hanoi Rocks teaming up with Billy Idol's guitarist Steve Stevens. They released one insanely cool record. It sure looks like the same Greg Ellis, so that's pretty awesome for me. That's actually your second Hanoi Rocks reference on the episode, by the way. Right on. Well, I'll go for three, man. And then Rob McKenzie on guitar. He plays on, I think, two tracks. I'll talk a little bit more about that after the interview. Oh, and Ryan, I should talk about Geza X as well. Yeah. I'm sure most people know who he is. Uh, Geza Gedeon, 
He produced tons of early punk singles like Holiday in Cambodia, Six Pack, uh, Lexicon Devil, all the early stuff from like the Weirdos. He was the sound man for the Screamers. Uh, he he all himself has some singles and a killer full-length album under his own name called Hey You Goddamn Kids with Paul on keys, Brendan Mullen on drums, DJ Bonebreak is on it. It's really good. Ryan, let's go over to the interview with Kenny. All right, we're joined on the podcast today by Kenny Lyon. Kenny, thanks for being on the show. It's a, it's a distinct pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Right on. So I have it, Kenny, that you moved around a little bit when you were younger, but I think you spent the majority of your time around Miami. Well, yeah, I mean, I'm from Miami, but I lived in Vero Beach, and then I lived in, in Africa and Congo for a couple of years, and then back in Vero Beach, and then southern Spain for a couple of years, and then Miami before I moved to L.A., okay. and then New York, and then L.A. again. <laughs> Did you start on guitar Probably. first? Yeah, I started out playing flamenco guitar when I was living in Sevilla in, in southern Spain. That was the first thing I ever played. So what was like the first music that grabbed you? Well, you know, I was, I was learning flamenco, but then like everybody else, I, you know, I heard the Beatles and I heard Jimi Hendrix and I heard Led Zeppelin. Like Led Zeppelin was the first concert I ever went to. I, I moved back from Spain when I was like 15. Some parents took a couple of us kids from Vero Beach to Orlando to hear Led Zeppelin. I, and I had no idea what I was in for. <laughs> you know, I was like, my ears are used to flamenco and living in totally different places and the lights came on and they started playing immigrant song. And I think that kind of set the direction of my life for better or worse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that one second. Okay. So when you move out to LA, are you out of high school by that point? Oh yeah. I was already out of college when I came to LA. Why LA? Did you go there to like be a musician? Yeah, I was, I was with a friend of mine, Mike Rogers. We've been in Miami together and we made a kind of a, uh, a sort of a new wave ska record, our first record. And we went to New York to try and sell it. And then we went to LA and LA just kind of stuck, mm. you know? And th then it was a few years later that I met Paul Rosser for the first time. Right. What was the, ska, the new wave ska band? What was, what was that band called? It was called Stephen Razor in Miami. And then when we came to California, uh, Peter Tosh said there was a, there was a female Stephen Razor band. So we had to change it to Stephen Laser. It was it was the it was the eighties. The drummer was Gary Malibu, who is like, if you if you 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 probably have twenty records he played on in your collection. His first platinum record was Moon Dance mm. by Van Morrison mm -hmm. when he was seventeen. Great drummer, and the bass player was Freebo. It was a pretty cool band, but you know, kind of fizzled out about eighty five or eighty six. The record came out though. Uh, independently produced, nobody ever heard it. Okay, so how did you meet Paul? You know, I'm trying to remember how I how I first I know that the first time I met him, I think it was through Paul Baker and it was for a, a Nina Hagen recording session with him and Pat Smear. Like a really low rent one, like we were doing it onto a four track or something. Okay. I, that might have been when I first met him and I just uh we became friends and I mean I've always been a big fan ever since. Mm -hmm. You know, I was and I was in Twisted Roots for a little while. I've, I always thought that he was like one of the great unappreciated American composers, a really brilliant guy. Absolutely. Now, did you play in Nina's band? No, I never played in her band. It was only one recording session. She was a fascinating person. And then I think the next thing I did with Paul might have been, might have been Twisted Roots. Um, and then we went on the road with Mark Curry for a number of years. 
And, oh, yes, after Twisted Roots or around the same time was Abominable. When did you do the Divinals thing? Was that before or after? That would have been kind of in between. Okay. Was that kind um, of your first major introduction to touring? Yeah, that was my first. I, I had done like low rent, like Calypso and rock and roll stuff when I was a kid, but that was the and that was the first time it was ever the big time. You know, we were out with NXS and we were playing like big stadiums. That was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? It happened because I was um, the Step and Laser had broken up, and I was kind of like lost for a minute. And I took this job working in a studio, like producing demos for a guy named Ron Fair, who went on to be, he was the head of A&R at Chrysalis Records and went on to become the head of RCA and like a big wig. But at the time, he was a really interesting guy. I learned a lot from him. And then I got the chance to go audition for Joe Jackson in New York on guitar. And I went to New York, auditioned, came back, went to San Francisco with my, my at the time girlfriend for a wedding. And on the way home, she fell asleep at the wheel and we went over like a cliff on TCH. Wow. Um, south of Santa Barbara, and I ended up with my right hand in a cast. So Ron Fair was like, oh, you can't play now, but I got these crazy Australians who need someone to produce their demos. Do you want to work with them? I said, yeah, man, I got to work. And so that's how I met the Divinals. He put me in a studio with them for about a month. And when we finished the demos, they said, hey, you want to come to Australia and, and play keyboards on our tour, which is kind of like, I could do it with one hand, you know, it wasn't like right. being a keyboard player or like being a keyboard operator. Right. And, uh, and it, it was great. The, that tour was me, uh, Mark and Christy from the Divinals, Frank and Fonty was playing guitar. I was playing keyboards. Muggs came was the drummer and, um, Rich, Rick, Rick Grossman, the original Divinals bass player. Mm-hmm. It was a great band. We worked like crazy. We would do like 30 shows in a row, you know, and I was there for four months and it really kind of changed my life. For sure. Yeah. How did you get into production work? Like, how did you, what, I guess, qualified you to be a producer at that point in time that someone would have asked you um, to do that? It was only, it was only demos, but no, I learned how to do that because back in Miami, when me and Mike Rogers made that first Scott record, the guy who was the producer was really busy and he had a mobile truck parked in the house and he would like show me how to set stuff up and then he had to go do some other stuff. Mm-hmm. He was a great guy. Rob Burr was his name. He kind of taught me how to do it. And it's, you know, it's not rocket science. And then over the years, just by having people think you already know how to do it, you gradually learn how to do it. (laughs) (laughs) Fake it till you make it. Exactly. Yeah. So when did the, your writing come in? Like you wrote a novel at one point. Yeah, that was my real goal. I mean, I always loved music and jazz and stuff, but I, I wanted to be a novelist Mm -hmm. and I, um, I had saved up enough money on that Divinals tour that I took 13 months off and I wrote Three Monkeys, the novel, which was a huge failure in so many ways. I think artistically it's really good, but it was plagiarized by Universal and the bones of it were turned into something called Oh Monkeys. Uh, oh, really? But they, they changed it so much that it was, it was not actionable. I had They were lawyers talking to their lawyers. It was typical what happens. I was stupid. I didn't even care about screenplays. That was my agent's idea. I just wanted, you know, to sell to be a novelist, mm-hmm. which was kind of much more interesting to me. And by getting involved with an agent who didn't really know how to deal with literature and just wanted the, the, the some ideas from it to become a movie, it, I got sidetracked. And uh, and then music kind of heated up again, 
And I sort of just went that way. So you're playing in Twisted Roots. It's my understanding that he passes these demos that he's been making on his four track over to Greg Ginn. And Greg says, make a record of this stuff. So at that point, do you get a phone call from Paul? Yeah, I mean, we were, we were, in, we were in touch. We were friends. And he said, I got something I think you'd be right for. And then I think I got him in touch. Or maybe he already knew Greg Ellis, the drummer, who was a fine drummer. And then I brought in uh, Rob McKenzie, the Australian guy playing on the one track, who was another fabulous and underappreciated artist, a really brilliant musician. He came in, and we went down to some studio in, I think, Torrance. Mm -hmm. Third Torrance wave. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And we just knocked it out. And, and Gaza was on, it was in there too. Right. Okay. So tell me about Greg. How did, how did you know Greg? And was there any specific bands that he was in? You know, Greg, Greg was in, he had the gig in David and David when they were making some noise in the beginning when they had that hit record. And then he was in a metal band, but I think I knew him because this reggae band, the rebel rockers, brought him into a recording session to play drums, and I was engineering at the studio in Little Canyon, and we became friends. And Rob, I'm assuming you mentioned he's Australian. Did you meet him on the Divinals tour? No, no. I knew him before I ever went to Australia. I met him, like, the first week I showed up in L.A. in a van with no money. I met him just by accident. He was, at the time, he was a guitar tech, and he needed something done. He was at, like, some music store that's not there anymore down on Santa Monica Boulevard. And we've been friends ever since. But he was sort of legendary in Australia. He was in a band called McKenzie Theory, which is kind of a fusion band um, back in the day. And then he moved here, and he just uh, he just kind of disappeared. Then he got the then he got the gig, the odd gig in um, Shana Na, which he did for about ten years. Oh wow! Which is funny because he's like Don McLaughlin, you know. <laughs> <laughs> he's like a monster musician, but he took right to it, man. Greased his hair and. Played rock and roll. Was this like a band? Did you, as in the sense that, like, did you get it in a practice space and, like, work these songs up? I think we did. I had a garage where I was living in, in, uh, in, in what is a neighborhood that's known as Atwater here. We might have rehearsed there because some of them were pretty, some of the songs were pretty complicated. Absolutely, yeah. We probably rehearsed for a little bit, yeah. But not that much. I mean, everybody was, everybody was pretty good, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, some of these songs like Gila Monster Stomp, I don't know when's the last time you heard this record, but uh, I know that Paul had a, a love for prog rock, and you can definitely hear, you know, the prog yeah. coming out in some of these songs. Right, That's that, that, I think it's in some different meters and stuff. That one's a real stomper. I remember that one, and I remember Make a Wave, or With a Wave, because that one I, is the one that I played guitar and bass on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you played some fretless bass even on this on this album. I think that's all I played on the record was fretless bass. Yeah, I mean, and 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 nylon string guitar. I don't know if I played any electric guitar or not. I don't think so. Now you mentioned that Geza was was he in the studio with you at Third Wave because I I think there was two sessions. Yeah. Geza recorded some of this at his studio and then some of it at Third Wave, but I could be wrong about that. I'm not sure. I, I don't know what he did at his place, but he came into third wave with a really early computer-based MIDI setup and ran the tracks for that one song of his that's on there. And it might have been when I first met him. 
Yeah, the the LP says recorded at Third Wave March 25th, 26th, and April 1st and 2nd, 1988 with James Mansfield and Victor Arenberg. I do remember the guys from All were there hanging out. Oh, yeah. I met those guys then. Yeah. That's cool. No real strong recollections about the sessions. Like how much overdubbing would have happened or would have this been, just been kind of live, the bed tracks live off the floor? Um, all the rhythm session stuff was, was went down pretty quick. I'm pretty sure that, that Rob played his electric guitar part as an overdub. And I know, of course, I played my nylon string guitar stuff as an overdub. But it was it went really fast. We did it in just a few days. You know, we were all broke. Mm-hmm. We like to, the record budget was probably a thousand dollars or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> we had to get it done. There was no time for uh, for second guessing. Right. <laughs> it's pretty impressive then that this was just kind of banged out because you know, like you mentioned, some of these songs are are quite complex. Yeah, I'm sure we rehearsed them, mm-hmm. and uh, and like I said, everybody was a good player, and and Paul's writing was so strong. You know that. Just kind of it was it was a real pleasure. I don't remember it being anything but a lot but a blast. You know, not one minute of a bad time. Do you, did you play live at all with any of these songs? I remember, yeah. We I remember that because because that, that this great guy Icarus made a gigantic banner of the album that became the album cover, where it's the same piece of art. Okay, yeah. And I remember playing it at at um, God. It was the it was the park the park whatever it's called that place over there. In, not far from where I live right now, the Park Palace or whatever, that's not the name of it. It's not there anymore, but it was a really big old hotel turned into a venue. I mean, the Sugar Cubes might have even been on the same night, hmm. you know, before 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 um, York. It wasn't was Scream, maybe. Sure. No, well, hmm. maybe there was the Scream was the movable club, but I'm thinking yeah. of the building it was in. It's right hmm. down the street from here, but it doesn't have the same name anymore. Hmm. Anyway, I remember I remember having like a lot of lights, and having that big abominable banner, and we wouldn't have done that for a Twisted Roots show, I don't think. So it must have been us playing the abominable stuff. But I'm not positive. Paul would know better than me about that. I want to ask you about. I'm just going to drop some names on you, and you can kind of tell me about your history with some of these artists because you've you've done a lot. Um, tell me about the China Club, L.A. House Band, and the Monday Night Jams. Oh, that was a that was a trippy time. That was a real blast. Um, I had a lot of fun on those. I just kind of, you know, it's funny. I never really did. I never became like an established writer because of my book, but a lot of, a lot of things kind of opened up for me with people who read it and liked it. Mm-hmm. Like Jim Anger, the leader of that band. I think the main reason I got in that band was because he really liked my book. And because, oh, you know, and also because there was nobody, there was all, everybody in the band was a great player, but nobody really knew jazz standards as well as I did. So, if they needed somebody to play something that was a little bit like that, if some singer came in and wanted to like, you know, sing Misty or something, then I would know how to do it. Right. But other than that, it was, there was so many good players running around that wondered why I got the gig. Oh, and also because I could play bass too. And the bass player, Hutch Hutchinson was in town when Bonnie Ray wasn't on the road and I'd play guitar. And then when he would go on the road, I would play bass. Okay. So that's how I got that gig. And I was really lucky because I got to play with, you know, Elton John with Bruce Springsteen was getting all these people, Herbie Hancock. It was a lot of fun. So that was like, I got to be good things with John and Twitzel. <laughs> <laughs> so these famous musicians would come down to this, to the China club to specifically to, to get up on stage and jam with the house band. Yeah, it was, and it was a good house band. We had a great horn section. 
we had great background singers. One of them was Cheryl Crow. Well, she was one of the background singers. And um, the Tower of Power guys played with us sometimes. It was always Joseph Blatt. He's a great horn player. Bunch of different, a bunch of different players went through it. But the leader was Jim Anger. He was the piano player. Uh, I'll send you a story that I, that I wrote about about the, the, when it first went big time, which is when Elton John came in. Because I had a very a key part of that experience that basically had to do with the fact that every Monday night we got paid so little that we kind of got paid partly in, in booze. And you know, <laughs> so me and Jeff Baxter and George Marinelli would just drink scotch every break. They would give us single malt scotch because right. it was a big scene. <laughs> so we were always just on the edge of hammered. Yeah, I'll send you the story. Sure, yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. It's, it's about the it's about Elton John night. I think you'll laugh. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Mark Curry earlier. When did you meet Mark? And uh, tell me about recording and touring with him. That was completely through through Paul. Paul, because Mark's manager was Desi Benjamin, who was also Mark's, Paul's manager. And when when Desi got Mark signed... He said, Paul, you gotta you gotta record with this guy. And he said, I think I know just the guy to play bass. And because it was these kind of like punk ballads, and I was playing fretless bass, and it kind of in an odd way seemed to make sense. And um, so that's how that started. Then I ended up working with Mark for years. We're still friends. And what's the Mark Curry no effects connection? And how did you end up playing on a no effects record or performing on one? El Jefe, who's like one of the main guys in no effects was Mark Curry's brother. Ah, okay. Sort of. His his Mexican family, Mark was living on the street in high school because he had a dysfunctional family. And El Jefe's family, the Abedes, who were just first-class people, adopted Mark. And El Jefe was in Mark's band, Crystal Spear, that kind of got shoved aside the way record companies do when Mark got his solo deal. And then El Jefe was playing with us playing guitar in the touring band he did he played i think he played on one track on the record maybe a solo he's a great player and but he but he wasn't in the in the session the main guitar player i played some but the main guitar player was wadi Wachtel. but then we went on the road and i remember this is a good story we were in detroit getting ready to go across to canada to play a show in toronto it was freezing cold it was february of 1993 and they had to get leave our bus in America and rent a van because it was harder to get a bus across the border or something. So we're in some, like, diner, some Denny's kind of thing at 2 in the morning at El Jefe. Aaron is his name. He comes back to the table. He goes, Chief, because that's what they called me back then. He said, Chief, my Fat Mike wants me to join No Effects. I don't know what to do. I said, he wants you to join No Effects, like, full member? Like He goes, yeah. I said, do it. Don't worry about it. You know, don't worry. He said, but I don't want to leave you guys. And then we'll get another guitar player. Just do it. That's going to be the best thing that ever happened to you. <laughs> so we always joke about I'm responsible for him being a very wealthy man. <laughs> and then and then when they made Punk and Drubbuck, he I guess he just partly were paying the favor. He had me come in and, and play guitar on a track. And since I made the part up, they gave me a gold record for it, which was very oh, nice. Of them. They're, wow. they're cool people and a great band. That's great. I'm a fan. Yeah. I'm a no effects fan. That's awesome. Jan Arden being Canadian, a, a name I know quite well. I've probably even seen you maybe uh, play with her. You know, I never played live with her, which was kind of a weird choice I made in my life. She's amazing. And I was going to drop that name. I always drop that name to any Canadian because I love her. <laughs> that was great. I love playing on the record. I loved her. 
she wanted me to keep playing with her, and I chose rock and roll and went with Mark Curry, and my life would have probably been so much easier if I'd <laughs> stayed with Jan. <laughs> you did play on one of her records, though, as like a session guy? Yeah, I played on the first record, every track, on, on um, Time for Mercy. I okay. played Fretless Bass on it. Right on. Okay, tell me about the Brazzaville project. When I, when I, I moved to New York in 94... And then when I came back here in 98, this old friend of mine, David Brown, who is one of my best friends, he also got to know me because of my novel. He said he was playing sax with Beck. And he, and I never knew him to be, I always knew him to be, a, to be a jazz sax player, but he said, man, I've written some songs and I want to sing. I want to start a band. Do you want to do it? And, you know, when a friend of mine asked me anything, I always say yes. Yeah. And so we made a... But we made a couple records. They're nice records, but nobody in America cared about them at all. We did a couple tours where we'd have like a good show in New York, a good show in L.A., a good show in Charleston, South Carolina, and crickets everywhere else. And then a Russian rock promoter picked up one of the first first CDs in a used CD store in London that we suspect our our percussionist Joel Vergel dropped there, and took it back to Russia and started playing it on his TV show and radio show. And the kids loved it and they just went crazy. So, you know, I've been playing in Russia now for since then, pretty much wow. around 2002. <laughs> it really picked up around, we had a hit song in 2008 and then I couldn't go for a while because it wasn't enough money. David Brown lives in Barcelona mm-hmm. and it was expensive to fly from here. So I didn't go for the first a band from, you know, he, he recruited a, a band of guys we've all who are all friends now from Barcelona. And then in 2007, the fees went up because we had a hit song and I started going. I've been going ever since. And then he got the brilliant idea to start a microphone company. So now I'm involved in that, too. <laughs> it's funny, you know, you, you when I asked you about Three Monkeys, you said that it was a somewhat of a failure, maybe not artistically, but... It seems like it sure opened a lot of doors for you. Yeah, it was like a very long, involved, experimental greeting card. <laughs> <laughs> so when's the next novel coming out? Or has there been another one? No, there hasn't. I mean, I, I, I when I came back from New York after my Lemonheads time, or kind of in the middle of it, I was getting divorced and I didn't want to do music anymore. So I, I wrote a bunch of screenplays rewrote some for a producer friend of mine and wrote it, but none of them ever got made. I did write the first treatment for, for machete. Mm-hmm. But I don't know that they use much of it, but I mean, I made a little money at it and nothing ever. I never, it never really took on. I went back into music, but I do have a second, a second novel that's about halfway through, but I haven't, I haven't finished it yet. Okay. Who knows what'll happen. You mentioned Lemonheads. You played on the car button cloth record. Did um, I'm assuming you toured with them as well. Yeah, I played guitar on Car Button Cloth, and then I toured with him one tour as a keyboard player, and then for years as a bass player, on and off. Like, I did a whole year behind that one, the last Atlantic record, and there was time off, and then I did another one, and then the last one I did was in 2004. So I was kind of associated with Evan for about eight years, on and off. Mm-hmm. The last tour was a, was a South American tour in 2004. Another fascinating guy, great songwriter, brilliant guy. Uh, and then another SST, uh, a former SST guy, Josh Hayden. You played in in Spain with him. I do that right now. I mean, we're now not now because unfortunately, uh, there's this little disruption in the world. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I love playing with Josh. Josh is awesome. We, 
Uh, I produced the last two, produced the next to last Spain record and co-produced the last one with him. And I've been doing playing guitar on the tours for, for years now. And they're all European. Nobody in America cares. Mm-hmm. We go to Europe for long tours. And Patrick came with us on the last one. And that is really a natural for me because it kind of goes back to my sort of jazz and improvisational roots. And uh, he's another really great guy. I really, I really love playing with Josh. What else? What, what didn't I ask you about? You've had such an amazing uh, career. Oh, that's so nice of you. No, I mean, just you know, I've just been going from A to B. Sometimes I'm rock star adjacent. Sometimes I'm not. Um, I, you know what I did that was really that I really liked. There's a lot of other stuff in between, but I liked working with Joe Frank. Do you know who he was? He passed away a couple years ago. The name's familiar, but tell me. Peabody Award-winning radio dramatist. Hmm. You know, he did spoken word, but he's like, people people like Martin Scorsese are fans of him. And Iris, you know, Ira from, from This American Life. I mean, he was really brilliant. And I got to do, I got to work with him a bunch doing music for some of his shows. That was really, really great. I enjoyed that. Okay. And then a lot of records that never were made some, made some nice records with Joel Vergel. Those were good records and Clark and McLean records. Yeah, records. That kind of, I mean, well, I also produced a bunch of Chicano gangster rap, <laughs> which was sort of interesting. I'm sorry to laugh, but it's just your no, it's, your it's career hilarious. is just <laughs> your uh, you know your musical journey is just so eclectic. It's it's funny to me. What I would refer to as a career. There actually was a radio show. It was so incongruous that some like Scottish heritage guy living in Koreatown was making these Chicago gangster rap records that um, KPCC or whatever the radio station that does off ramp did a radio show about me. Yeah, I'll send you that. It'll it will definitely make you laugh. Yeah. <laughs> right on. What's next? What what are you doing next? Do you know? Well, I'm I'm helping. I'm running the U.S. part of this rep, this microphone company. We're still use microphones. Mm-hmm. We're doing really well. Like we make handmade condenser mics in Russia, mm-hmm. and you know our our client list is like Coldplay, Radiohead, the Lumineers, wow, whole bunch of people. So that's that's like hard work. I've never I've never had that kind of job. To me, it's always been, you know, classic musician life, which is like not much of a future, but a hell of a past. Yeah. But now I'm sort of a businessman, you know, and a shipping clerk and a tech person who fixes them. <laughs> so I'm doing that, and um, I did I do I did some soundtrack work during the pandemic. I, I did a, a short film that was kind of fun. Wrote the music for it. And then doing shows back in Russia with Brazzaville. And as soon as we can do it, I'm sure there'll be some Spain tours in Europe again, which are always fun. So life goes on. Well, I know Josh yeah. listens to the show, so shout out to Josh. Oh, yeah. Josh is Josh <laughs> is awesome, man. He's, uh, he's a blast. He's a, he's a cool guy to, to play music with. Kenny, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me today. I really appreciate it. Oh, anytime. It's a pleasure. Right on. Thanks for being on the show, Kenny. It sounds like he's had like quite the uh, the diverse and eclectic career. Hey, like yeah. wow, yeah, wow, <laughs> that's great. His bass playing really does stand out on this record, though. It yeah, really, it uh, yeah. it's super tasty. Yeah, I wrote more about it when you know when I went through the tracks, but yeah, you can you can definitely pick it out. Yeah, uh, his book that he wrote, Ryan Three Monkeys. He sent me a copy. What? Yeah. No way. Right yeah. on. So I'm going to check that out for sure. Uh, Rob McKenzie, 
So he mentions the band Mackenzie Theory. So they're an Australian band, uh, one studio album, Out of the Blue, 1973, Mushroom Records, and a live one, Bon Voyage from 1974. Uh, that's on Spotify. You can check it out. Very Mahavishnu-esque. Mm. There's even a like a, a viola, very prominent, kind of, you know, like uh, Jerry Goodman. Definitely worth checking out. Uh, I'll be tracking down the studio album. That's not streaming anywhere. I'm actually kind of shocked I didn't know about this. It's definitely in my wheelhouse. Interesting that All was hanging out at Third Wave mm-hmm. around this time, uh, which makes sense because the last confession was recorded there in uh, from February 7th to 21st, 1988. Billy was producing. Yep. And All Roy for Prez Ryan was recorded March of 88. Yeah, yeah. So right around the time this was recorded. Uh, Mark Curry, super cool. If you haven't heard his albums, Kenny is all over them as a player and a producer. Uh, His first EP from 1992 has a track on it called Perfect Government, which was covered by NoFX on the Punk and Drublick album. Hmm. Uh, Cool that he played in the Lemonheads. Spain with Josh, those Spain records he's on. Uh, Carolina... Mandela, Brush, and the Live at uh, Love Song, uh, is they're all great. That live one has Xander Schloss on it, A Killer Jam with Joe Biza. They're all really great, and you should check them out. Uh, that Lemonheads record he's on, Carbot and Cloth, uh, is of course awesome. Uh, he mentions Joe Frank. He sent me some stuff on Joe and his work. For sure, there are listeners who already know who he, who he is, but if you don't, you should look him up for sure. Pretty cool that, like, he mentioned after the interview that he was going to see Paul the next day because he was going to play on a Josie Cotton session. (laughs) Uh, The China Club Monday Night Jams. He sent me some of his writing, uh, you know, besides his book. Uh, He's a really great writer, so I can't wait to to read his novel. He sent me a piece about (laughs) trying to score weed while out on tour. Another one about going to a gun range with Joni Mitchell, of all people. And then this crazy piece about an evening at the China Club. Um, I'm, and I picked some of that stuff out, Ryan. Check this out. What key? I stared at him. He was so close I could have touched him with the neck of my bass. He looked strange. The whole thing was strange. Keyboard players never sat in. Not ever. But here was this odd-looking fellow peering at me from behind thick glasses and beneath a funny hat, asking me the key of some dirt-dumb, stone-simple rockabilly tune. This is a really long piece, but I'm just, I just picked out some excerpts from it. So I told him, E. He smiled and turned to the piano. And when he took a chorus, he was good. Solid honky-tonk piano. Bobby started another song. Same thing, good solo. I told him, he smiled. Gradually, a realization crept into my overly liquid brain. Something funny was going on. The downstairs VIP room crowd had come upstairs en masse. And then the singer sang and became Elton John. Whoa. I was jamming with Elton John and I wasn't taking any shit from anyone, including him. We finished the song and I shouted above the crowd's roar, play one of your songs. (laughs) (laughs) He looked at me and smiled and played another standard. I'm generally respectful, even when I'm drunk. Call me a happy, respectful drunk, but a persistent one. The song ended and I turned to Elton immediately. Come on, play one of your songs. Everybody does this stuff. Play one of yours. He looked at me and I at him. The moment hung in the air, stalled. 
thumbing its nose at the twin thugs of reality, time, and gravity. Finally, he smiled. Without looking away, he appreciated a big, sweet E-flat chord. Your song. 500 memories stirred, 500 throats erupted. The band kicked in and we were off. Musicians were enjoying it as much as the audience. It seemed perfectly natural to me. I didn't find out until later just how unusual an occurrence it was. My mind was focused, and it stayed that way. We finished the song. During the excitement and confusion that followed, I turned to Elton. Benny! He looked hmm. at me questioningly, questioningly. Benny and the Jets, come on. Benny, let's do it. He pondered the situation. Do you know it? Sure, we know it. Sort of. Okay. It goes to a few places and probably wasn't the easiest song to jump into, but the excitement of the moment got the better of his judgment. He hit the G major nine stab that identifies the song like dental records and DNA. Mm -hmm. The place really went crazy. And we got through it. It wasn't perfect, certainly not on my part, but the spirit was there. It was a moment no one there that night will ever forget. Wow, that's cool. Would it yeah. surprise you to know that in my storied bass playing career, I once graced the stage playing Benny and the Jets three nights in a row? <laughs> no, because I, I know exactly what you're talking about, so it wouldn't surprise me at all. <laughs> yeah, that's cool, man. Like, wow, what a what a career, and he's still going. It's so yeah. cool to have Kenny on the show. It's just, again, another example of how far the SST tentacles reach, yeah. you know? Yeah, love, absolutely. Just love it. I loved the El Jefe and No Effects story too. Like yeah. that's, I, I I don't really stick with No Effects. Uh, they were definitely like a young teenager high school band for me. I kind of grew out of them. But but Punk and Drublick is the year I got into them and saw them live. So that's just a great story for me. Yeah, yeah. Kenny's on that record, man. And uh, check out that Mark Curry stuff. It's really good. Let's get into this record, though. Yeah, man. History Lesson, Part 2. It only seems fitting, Brent, that we start off our first History Lesson 2 of the year with some Spaceman. Absolutely. Here we go. From the SST catalog, Michael Whitaker on Abominable. His high-powered keyboards and songwriting have helped propel both DC3 and Twisted Roots. Now, with the help of some gifted friends, Paul sits astride the great timeline, one arm in the future, one in the past, drawing from both to create ten instrumental classics for today. Cassette has two bonus tracks, SST196, LPN Cassette. Yeah. We'll get into this when we go through the tracks, but the bulk of this was recorded at Third Wave Studios in 42 hours on March 25th, 26th, and April 1st and 2nd, 1988. Engineered by James Mansfield, second engineer Victor Ehrenberg. Uh, James Mansfield recorded Chemical People's Tenfold Hate, All Roy's Revenge, The mm -hmm. Last Awakening, so we'll be seeing him again. Funny the way SST worked with studios. Like we've seen this over and over. They find a new studio, they go hard, and then they just use it for a block of albums, and then half the time you never see the studio pop up again. Yeah, yeah. They're, you know, it's like uh, they see an opening, a block of time, or the right price, and they just give her. Yeah. Uh, this never came out on CD. It's LP and cassette only. 
but uh, like I mentioned, it is up on Paul's Bandcamp. Let's do the tracks, Ryan. So it starts with the old people. Uh, so there's this Canadian library label found in the, in the early 90s called Abaco Music uh, with all kinds of wild shit on it. And Paul and Geza are all over these comps. Uh, there's one called Slammin' and it has a bunch of tracks uh, with Paul and Geza along with David Kendrick of Gleaming Spires. Another comp called 88 Keys, which is all piano music. Uh, but the coolest one I found is called Starship. It's all space theme stuff, and this song is on there, but it's titled Evil Warship on that hmm. one. Uh, there's probably more of these comps with Paul and Geza on them. There's literally hundreds on this label. Uh, the liner notes on this LP, Abominable, say the title of Old People is courtesy of Des Kadena. Uh, really cool opener, kind of an ominous sounding piece with the tritones. Kind of reminds me of Mr. Crowley or something. Uh, you got Greg on timpanis for the 2001 A Space Odyssey vibe. And every time I hear that backwards tape manipul manipulation, I think it's Zeppelin. Like there's me. Oh, me too. Me too. I have a note here. I said it's Robert Plant and Jimmy Page. They're they're playing it backwards. It's buried, but you cannot mistake it. I would I'd put money on that for yeah. sure. Okay. Uh, it's a cool, creepy opener that really sets the tone for the album. It's got like a Phantom of the Opera type vibe for me, almost. Yeah. It says on the liner notes to the LP that Greg Ellis was endorsed by Zildjian. Promark, Tama, and Remo, and he's certainly making good use of those Zilligen symbols on this track. Yeah, for sure. That's quite the endorsement, though, too, right? Yeah. Wow. Okay, track two, Gila Monster Stomp. Uh, I referenced Paul's background in Prague when I was, you know, talking to him about this track. Progressive music, not the city Prague. That's right. This to me totally sounds like ELP or Yes. Uh, and he said, Geeler Monster Stomp is derived from The Ark, my 43 minute prog song that I wrote in high school. At that point, I never imagined that someday I would record and release the whole thing. So this was a little teaser from it. He did, of course, finish recording it in 2012. It's totally epic. You can hear it on his band camp. It's broken down into like separate tracks on there, and you hear some of this incorporated into the sixth track called Head to Head. Ah. Also, as Paul, Paul points out, it's pretty difficult music to learn because of all the meter changes, but Kenny and Greg learned it like it was no big deal because they are incredible. Uh, the LP credits Kenny to bass and guitar, and he mentions uh, that on in the interview that any guitar he played on the album was nylon string maybe that's i can maybe hear it in the slower breakdown found it hard to pick it out mm. uh, but this track is just so impressive i mean he composed this when he was 16 yeah that's when he wrote the art so many twists and turns this song is just totally epic i can't even imagine seeing a band perform something like this live no kidding it did have this weird kind of reference for me when I listened to it, it triggered that Bad Religion record into the unknown. You know, the, the proggy one, their second full length? Yeah. It kind of had, and I don't know if it's just the the synth sound that Paul chose is similar to the one that they used on Into the Unknown, but it, I was like, man, that kind of sounds like that second Bad Religion record. Okay. 
I mean, and he demoed or whatever. I don't, they weren't really demos, but he did a lot of this on four track. Mm-hmm. Like you and I are from the four track era. I, I spent a lot of time making stuff on four tracks and it, I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to play it for anybody now. This holds up. And I think Paul said that when we talked to him one time, that this is one of the albums that he can still listen to and not cringe. Yeah. Okay, the next track, With a Wave. Also, this is from Paul. Also written in high school, probably influenced pretty heavily by 70s era Frank Zappa. Oh, dude. (laughs) You picked that up? Oh, yeah. When I listened to this, I, I said, oh, this reminds me of Sofa One and Sofa Two from One Size Fits All. This is George Duke all over it for me. Okay. And in a really, really great way. Uh, he says, it has its own personality, which I think in a way is the ultimate goal of all composition. It's also not totally simple to learn. For me, there's that keyboard sound that we've heard on the DC3 albums. Uh, the way it goes in and out of the marching sections I can't even wrap my brain around it. This to me could have been a DC three song. Maybe it's just that extended solo that makes me think that again, Kenny is credited with guitar and Greg gets a credit on trumpet, which I really could not pick out, but you definitely can pick out that fretless bass. Mm -hmm. That's cool that you, you picked out the Zappa though. Oh, for sure. When I, when I listened to this, I was just like, dude, that is one size fits all. That it's, I would be interested to know if Paul was like, you know, into that record in particular, but it's not, it's not derivative. It's inspired by is kind of my take on it. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got the title track, Abominable. I keep avoiding saying that cause I think I'm going to screw it up, but I've, I think I, I think I've managed it so far. Abominable. Yeah. yeah. I, I screwed it up a lot <laughs> in my head for sure. This is like the tour de force on side one though. Right. Yeah. So this one was recorded half at Gaza's and half at Third Wave. Uh, Gaza plays guitar, bass, and percussion on it. This totally could have been from a John Carpenter movie. So much tension and menace. Oh, dude. I can't <laughs> believe he said... Because I wrote down, I'm like, this is the most badass soundtrack music from the best 80s movie. Oh, that's, yeah. the, that's what I wrote down here. And Kenny's bass is a major highlight as well. Yeah. So much tension and menace in this song. Yes, yes, for sure. Greg is credited uh, on talking drum, which is like an hourglass-shaped West African drum, uh, which pitch can be kind of regulated to almost mimic human speech. And I do hear some percussion on it, but it sounds more like bongos to me. Love those big guitar chords with the kind of flanger and the wind effect. Paul's really creating a mood with his part on this one. Loved it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this for sure is the highlight on this side. Okay, flipping it over, we've got Prokofiev Boogie, if I'm saying that right. Sergei Prokofiev, Russian composer who composed Peter and the Wolf. Prokofiev. Prokofiev, that makes more sense. Russian. Yep. Uh, described as a symphonic fairy tale for children, that Peter and the Wolf piece. The LP says it cont- includes a theme from Peter and the Wolf. Uh, the original piece, Ryan, uh, used different instruments to play various themes to represent each character in the story. Yep. On this track, we're seeing Rob McKenzie on guitar. Here's Paul on Rob. It is a phenomenon I have observed that there are pockets of excellent musicians all over who know each other. 
These aren't the punk musicians who have their own communities. These are the musician musicians who it turns out are very handy to know. Rob is an Australian guitarist who just came in and blew the doors off on two songs. I have never met him before or since these sessions, but my God, every time I hear his playing, I get a rush. That's so cool. I found this neat thing on Spotify of Sophia Loren telling the Peter and the Wolf story over top of the original score. Uh, you did? Yeah. Oh, you're not reading from Paul. Okay. No, no, this is me. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the main pattern f- from the original score that in this piece that, yeah. that you hear. It kind of makes me think of the Simpsons theme written by Danny Elfman a little bit when I hear that, hear it. Yeah, I mean, the Peter and the Wolf soundtrack, if you can call it that, the score, the score, let's call it that. Those riffs from that musical story, uh, I think were hugely influential to, uh, you know, two, maybe three generations of composers. And there's so much taken from that music, for sure. Like it's, um, and it's so distinctive when you hear it. And it's so, and it sounds like very very modern Eastern European composed type of classical music. Yeah. Like Paul said, there is a long tradition of classical pieces set to rock music mm-hmm. and in prog rock for sure. Uh, the next track frog skin graft. This one's a four track recording. Paul is credited with poker chips, scissors, comb, floor, box, lead and rhythm thing. And then, Helen Killer is credited with playing cards. Helen is Paul's wife. She was a ground floor LA punk rocker, super tight with the germs. She was part of the mass Canterbury scene. Uh, Here's Paul. Frogskin graft is made up of sounds from objects lying around the house. I think there was a poker set up and I dropped the chips for one of the sounds. Because I only had four tracks to work with, I enlisted my wife, Helen, to make that shuffling sound with me to save tracks. Nowadays, I would have sampled all of those sounds and everything would sound very clear and funky and rhythmic. Better in some ways for sure, but I do like the wonkiness of this version. Maybe I'll re-record it someday. The lead instrument is a zither played with a spoon. Remember, Sonic Youth used a modified zither, Ryan, Mm -hmm. which was like a stringed instrument with no neck, lots of strings, kind of looks like a harp or something. This to me, Ryan, sounds almost like something you'd hear Henry Kaiser or Fred Frith do. Yep. I agree. It it really reminded me of those records that we've heard for sure. Yep. I love though, in particular, the comb and how it sounds like, like a guero. You know what a, a guero is? The yep. scraper, the scrapey yep. thing. <laughs> I thought it sounded like croaking, which is, I, I assume, the, fro- the title. The frog from. sounds for sure, but a guero, a guero sounds like... You know, it has those kind of croaking sounds. And I thought it was very cool to get that sound out of a comb. But everyone's done that with a little black comb too, right? For sure. Uh, It's a cool arty interlude on the album. Uh, You know, with everything combined in this track, it definitely creates like a cool rhythm. Uh, The next track, Son of Mouse Maze. Here's Paul. Son of Mouse Maze is a whole tone section alternating with diminished chords. So it's kind of harmonically interesting. I had demoed this with a drum machine and keyboards. I do so much work by myself, it's pretty thrilling when a rhythm section like Kenny and Greg take it to the next level. You can hear Greg say, yeah, at the end because we were excited. 
Kenny also did some great guitar riffs on this. The rehearsals we did leading up to the recording really show. It wasn't more than a day or two, but there are some parts we came up with together that aren't on the demo, I believe. Well, the drum solo anyway, or the sort of drum solo, he says. There was an original Mouse Maze on the Twisted Roots Pandemonium Shadow Show album, and you can hear that as a bonus track, Ryan, on the Bandcamp version of this, the original Mouse Maze song. Ah. It's super cool. I suppose what the two have in common is like the alternating diminished chords that Paul mentions. Mm. Uh, cool how Kenny kind of plays that pattern that Paul is doing, like uh, his diminished chord pattern on top of. I like what Kenny's playing. The midsection where they double each other just rules. Greg's playing on this one and that off-kilter pattern he plays during the main section are just awesome. I probably would have shouted, yeah, too, at the <laughs> after pulling this <laughs> off, you know? Yeah, the drums are a highlight on that track, for sure. Yeah. Uh, track four, Toy Fugue, Paul on keyboards and samples, and then Geza X, bass, guitar, and production. This one was recorded at Geza's. Paul told me Geza was doing equipment reviews for Spin Magazine, so people were sending him gear to review. He called me to sort of motivate him by recording using the stuff they were sending. In those days, I would never say no to free recording time, and Geza was an old friend. There was a lot sitting around because it was really state-of-the-art gear for the time, samplers and sequencers, and he had to figure it out as we were recording. It was really complicated shit in my eyes, actually using a computer to make music. This must have been 84 or 85. We did three songs, and two of them wound up on Abominable. Like a lot of my stuff, Toy Fugue started out as piano ideas. I think I took a bag of my kids' toys out to sample, and that became part of the rhythm section, which forced Geza to learn how to sample and trigger in sequence synced to a tape recorder. This is the kind of stuff that really made my brain hurt. His brain too, but he got it done. He played some guitar on it too. Just another cool musical interlude. Interesting that he saved all of these ones for the B-side of the record. Mm. It kind of made me think of the Hoosker's Baby song a little bit. Kind of. It has a like a circusy steam whistle organ type of vibe that kind of has that whistle baby song sound. Yeah. Uh, another one that I just loved, Ryan, Not Quite Mummy. Uh, here's what Paul said. Sort of similar to Son of Mouse Maze in that I had made a version of it on drum machines and keyboards. Usually I think those are going to turn into songs with lyrics, but some of them just never do. I was probably thinking that this would be a good one to rock out on, give the musicians some solos. It's not very cerebral or anything. What saved the track for me was Rob McKenzie's guitar playing, which is just nuts. Talking about it now, I realize that I don't really think that way nowadays very much to write something that shows off musicians and it really contributes in a nice way to Abominable. It has punky energy, which is true for me. Like, total riff fest. Uh, you got Paul on tambourine on this one. Comes in just when the track really kicks in, which is cool. Paul just going off with some wild-ass flanged soloing. I really like this song. Yeah, I love the drummy intro. Uh, and then Punch In. This is a four-track song. All Paul. I, re, do you remember punching in on four tracks? You'd have that little foot switch. Oh, oh yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, 
I remember doing it kind of by hand or getting my buddy to go like to to do it on the machine because yeah. I didn't I often didn't even have that little switch yeah. or whatever. Uh, the idea behind punching, this is Paul, is not really th- theoretical at all. I have a Steiner Parker synthesizer that I've always loved for its crazy sounds, and one night I just decided to make a sound, record it for a while, then make another sound, and fade it in while the other faded out. Totally right brain. In those days, I was often recording on used tape because we were poor. I can't tell you how many times over the years I have used snippets of what was on the tape I'm recording over. It's pretty automatic for me to incorporate found objects. I have no idea what I was going over, but I have a dim recollection that it was a how-to tape, how to do something. I guess the theory was to use this synthesizer, which is really an extension of my arm and brain, and allow my subconscious to dictate a result. Then there's some kind of piano mess afterwards. I think they were two of those random experiments I was talking about earlier that I just stuck together. I shut off the critical thinking on this stuff to a degree and allow anarchist energy to guide and take over. The success, in quotation marks, of a piece like this for me is that there is nothing to compare it to. It has its own identity and life, and I don't have, have much to do with it. I just love that. The anarchist energy and kind of just letting his subconscious create art. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like this track is from outer space, for yeah. sure. So I can see that. Yeah, you can hear that how-to tape right at the beginning. Uh, this is really, as he references, kind of two separate pieces for me. You've got the first half, which is like the spacey Doctor Who part, and then the second half, which is the solo piano outro. Cool way to end the album. And then, Ryan, we have the two cassette-only bonus tracks. Mitch, Mr. H, was t- which is tacked on to the end of side one, and NDN, which comes after Punch In at the end of side two. Mr. H is up on the Bandcamp version. Uh, here's Paul. Mr. H was also derived initially from the Steiner Parker synth. It establishes a rhythm and alternates between noise and whole tone scale. There are lyrics in it about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but they are very buried and more a sound than a song. Pieces like this really got noise music out of my system. It doesn't interest me that much anymore. I did it for a while and discovered what really moves me in music, which is more songwriting. I like to incorporate it sometimes, and I think my ears are still very open-minded. But I listen to a piece like this and really notice my own evolution away from it. I find the degree of difficulty in songwriting more challenging. Hmm. It's definitely noisy, but like in the coolest way. It actually sounds like something you'd hear on a like Napalm Death doing on one of their albums these days. I totally dig it. Mr. H is, is super awesome. You should listen to it if you haven't. Unfortunately, NDN is not on the Bandcamp, and I couldn't find it anywhere, like on YouTube or anything. I'm trying to think, Ryan, but this might be the first track on any of these 196 releases that I haven't heard. Yeah. I, yeah. I only have the LP. I don't have the cassette. That track is, it's missing for me. Well, just too bad. Well, I'll have to try and just imagine it based on Paul's description here. He says, in the 60s and 70s, everyone went on about tape loops from classical composers to Eno to the Beatles. So of course, at some point, I had to get my own scissors and scotch tape and make tape loops. NDN was loops from the doors, the end, and Wanda Landowska playing the well-tempered 
Clavier by Bach. Again, an experiment, an exercise, not necessarily a particularly successful one, but what makes it possible possibly interesting is the juxtaposition between these soundscapes and the rock band playing the more rocking numbers. Rather than indivi the individual pieces, I'm looking at the whole of the album when I included them. How about that cover art, Ryan? Yeah, cool, by I. Niemand as the artist. Yeah, Icarus, I think, is the name that Kenny mentions. Icarus, yeah. Um, I couldn't find out a ton, but I think it's... Uh, I mean, did you find out about this person? It sounds like it's a Dutch-born uh, painter who now takes photo collages of records. Yeah. Yeah, I found a few things, like in some recent gallery showings, but... Yeah. Interesting. But it's a great piece of artwork that totally fits the record. You can see, like, the cover art of these these dragons around what looks like this mystical cauldron. Um, and you can totally hear you know, the music when you're looking at this image. I was interested to see, though, whether that little image of the arrows on the back of the dragon on the front cover and then inset on the back cover, whether that image of the arrows reminded you of another piece of iconic punk artwork. Well, of course, man. That is the uh, the symbol of chaos, which DOA uses for their logo. Exactly. There we go. Attaboy. Yeah. This to me, this is the Gila, Gila Monster Jamboree yeah. on the cover, you know, <laughs> full moon that they have their forks and their goblets and they're about to devour or possibly fight. It looks like over the glowing sphere in the bowl, which look like, looks like it's made out of a shell or something. The bowl, these aren't Gila monsters though. Cause they have wings. Yeah. They have dragons, but I mean, a Gila monster kind of dragony. Yeah. One of them is wearing a robe. Yeah. Yep. Uh, the photo of this, I'm assuming, and maybe the photos on the back are by Michael Quarterman of the band. Uh, Paul told me about I Niemand. He says he is an artist based in LA. He is a cousin of mine by marriage. I asked him to do the artwork and was just floored by what he came up with. Yeah. You can see it, you know, the whole thing's kind of blown up on the back and highlighted a little bit. Looks like this record was maybe made after Paul cut off his dreads. Around this time, he chopped them off. It's mentioned in the liner notes of the reissue of the CD Presents Twisted Roots album. He eventually grew them back. But what about Dead Wax, Ryan? Do we have any de Dead Wax? No Dead Wax, but I do have uh, one review. Nice. Yeah. So from the Trouser Press. But here's what Ira Robbins said about Abominable. Now, it's under the DC3 entry. There's uh, an additional paragraph here for Paul and this record. Recorded with a drummer and three people rotating on bass and guitar, Abominable is a jolly instrumental romp through somber, filmless scores. Skating rink music, Phantom of the Punk Club eccentricities, and pompless ELP-styled classics, such as the Prokofiev Boogie, takes Peter and the Wolf out of the woods. All solidly composed and proficiently played. I wouldn't want to hear too many more records like this, but Abominable is quite entertaining on its own terms. Yeah. I, gr I agree with that. Yeah, uh, although I could hear more like this for sure. You you could probably hear more of these than I could, for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yep. Here's from, this has nothing to do with this album, but this is, to me is a talking about Paul. This is from the liner notes to that 
self-titled Twisted Roots album. If Rossler's musical temperament is any guide, it's hard to imagine him willing to engage in the compromises needed to play the game. Hard to imagine that dumbing down his music for making considerations would be, for him, anything but an onerous, repugnant option. I'm a traveling salesman, day in, day out, Rossler sings in Walking Upside Down. That line could be read as a metaphor for the grind and frustration he long endured in trying to get his music heard. I like that, you know, because Kenny says in the interview, he calls Paul one of the great unappreciated American composers. And I totally agree. Yeah. Like, I just have total respect for him and for his artistic integrity and just the path he's kind of carved out for himself without yeah. compromising. No, definitely not. He's definitely made his way on his own terms, which is very cool. Yeah. I mean, I think Kira kind of overshadows Paul a lot. And 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 I think like that makes sense in the sense that Kira Rossler played bass in Black Flag and Paul Rossler didn't. But but look at what Paul has done and contributed to just in SST records alone. It's yeah. really impressive. Yeah, and we'll get into this more next week when we do our SST roundup. But he's there's some amazing stuff on his Bandcamp, you know, older recordings. And he's already, this year, put out a new recording. He put out a new recording on January 1st already. Wow, nice. Yeah. Probably wanted to be first. Yeah, well, I think he might have been. <laughs> All right, let's do the ballot result, Ryan. Okay. Ballot result. So for me, the best song for a comp tape, without question, is Abominable. I think that that song takes the cake on this. But what would you think? Yeah, not surprising. My favorite were the Rockers, Gila Monster Stomp, Abominable, Not Quite Mummy, and Mr. H is actually really cool. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. But we can do Abominable. That's yeah. the one that's going to make people want to check this record out for sure. Exactly. And that's what we should do. Yeah. Woo! Right on. Thanks to Kenny for being on the show, and thanks to Paul for all the input. Yeah, totally. Really? There's, yet again, there's like not much out there on this record. Yeah. I, sc I scoured and scoured and almost the best thing I could come up with is that excerpt from the Trouser Press. Yeah. Great to get the skinny on this one. Yeah. Whew. Ryan, what's next week? Next week, Brant, we've got a new band, a first timer. It's SST 197, the Trotsky Ice Pick record, baby. We've spoken about Trotsky Ice Pick a ton on the show already, but now we get to do the deep dive and we've got a special guest. You bet Cal Johansson's on the show. Awesome. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Tumblr, all at Mojack Pod. We post all kinds of info and tons of pictures of the bands and albums we discuss on the show. Our blog is mojackpod.com. Please check it out for some exclusive content. If you like what we do and want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to tell your friends about the show. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing on iTunes is also appreciated. We love hearing your opinions, corrections, and feedback, so feel free to post on our social media sites and send us an email to mojackpod at gmail.com. Thanks again for all the support, and we hope to see you next week.